Whoops. Haha. Do you remember the scene in The Wizard of Oz? Dorothy and her crew finally make it to the Emerald City, and they, they go to what was essentially the, the castle, and they, they get in there, and they walk down that hallway, and they turn into, like, the throne room for the city, right? Uh, and, and, and what they find there is the great and powerful Oz. Like, that's how he, he refers to him himself, right? And, and so um, Oz appears when they come around the corner. Oz appears. Yeah, here's a picture. I don't remember when that movie was out, but you can tell that the quality was really bad. <laughs> when? 37. 37. Wow. Nerd. Oh. oh, that hurt. That hurt. Okay, whatever. No soup for you. Uh, okay, so, so they have, a, so Oz appears as this like, disembodied floating head and there's fire shooting out all, all, all over the place. And, and the whole scene is designed to instill fear and maintain control, right? And, and that's why Oz appears the way he does. It's why he says the things he does. It's why you see all of the elements there that are, that are present in the scene. When, when Dorothy and the rest come around the corner and, and they see Oz, they're afraid. And, and fear is control, right? And, and so Oz is trying to keep or maintain control. And it's obvious by the interaction between Oz and the characters in the show that he, he really he is not interested in any kind of relationship, right? Like, like he is a little godlike. If you, if you remember back, I have to go back and I watch the clip. Um, he, he is a little godlike. He says, I know why you're here. Like, you need a heart, and you need a brain, and well, like, I know why you're here, I'm just not going to give you anything, right? And so, there's this, this moment, there's this tension there, and it's clear that Oz really just wants to rule, but he doesn't really want a relationship with any of his, his subjects. If you remember um, back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses first is introduced to God, Right? Moses doesn't, he knows kind of about God from when he was a kid, but he, he doesn't really know God. And so he's walking in the desert, he's tending his father-in-law's sheep, and, and, it's, and that, that bush catches on fire, right? And he, and he sees the bush, there's fire coming, but the bush is not burning up. And, and so um, Moses goes over to see what's going on. And as he approaches, as he approaches this, this fire and this bush, it's, it's like, it's kind of like he's entering the throne room of God. Now, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere, and it's the desert, right? So it's, it's not the same as, as Oz. But what does God tell him? Take off your sandals, because you're standing on holy ground. And, and so God is like, look, this place that you're in, this is important. There are things going on. Like, this is bigger than, than you. And, and there's no floating head like Oz. But there is fire, like in The Wizard of Oz. And, and I imagine the, the voice that comes from God, I, it must have been somewhat overwhelming for Moses, much like the voice of Oz for Dorothy and the rest. And, and so even Moses and Dorothy's responses are pretty much the same. They bow 
They, they realize they're in the presence of, of power and greatness, and so they bow. But, but that's about where the similarities between Moses' introduction to God and Dorothy's introduction to, to Oz, it's, it's really where the similarities end. Because unlike Oz, when God speaks to Moses, God's words are kind, and they invite conversation. And so after God tells Moses to get up, like there's this, like God's asking him questions, like they're talking back and forth. God doesn't refer to himself as the great and powerful God who created all of the universe and sustains everything in it. Instead, he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so from the very beginning, it's obvious that God is not asserting his rule over Moses, but he's inviting Moses into a relationship. He's saying, Moses, I I want to introduce myself to you. I want you to get to know me, to get to know who I am. Look, I walked with your your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I want to walk with, with you, and I want to be with you in relationship. And so it's a totally different picture from what we see in The Wizard of Oz. And that's really what I think we see throughout the whole Exodus story. It's the reason why I keep saying as we've gone through this series that the story of Exodus is really a roadmap for how to follow a God that you don't know. And, and all of us are in that boat, right? We, we all have to learn who God is, how to trust him, how to, how to walk with him. And, and that comes little by little, right? As we, as we maybe come to church or we're, in, we're talking to other people who are people of faith, we learn more about God and we, we try a little bit, right? And maybe, maybe you remember the first time that, um, you know, I, I think everybody has this picture. They come to church and like, like people go, well, church is only interested in your money. And so we all, like this, maybe that's in the back of our brains, but we all know that that like it takes money to keep things going. And so we kind of expect that. But do you remember the first time that you came to church and you were like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give to God? And, and maybe it, it wasn't a lot that first time, right? Because you've got to test the waters a little bit. Like, I'm going to give a little bit, and so is, is, is God going to take care of me? Or, or maybe you're, you know, like you're used to giving, and, and you come to this point where you're actually in need, and, and you still give, right? So th- there's this... There's this process by which we learn to follow God and to trust him because you don't know what you don't know. And so as we do those things, as we discipline ourselves, as we follow God, as we pray, as we read our Bibles, as we give, as we serve, God shows up and it builds trust so that we can can trust him for bigger and bigger things. And so God leads the people of Israel out of the darkness of their slavery And he establishes in this relationship over the course of 40 years the basis and boundaries for their their relationship, their covenant relationship. And I think the challenge for you and I, much like for the Israelites, is that we're trying to understand the relationship that we have with God. What what does it look like for me? And, And is it supposed to look for me like it looks for somebody else? And so is, is my walk with God supposed to look like that person's walk with God? And, and if it doesn't, who's doing it wrong? And so we have to learn and we have to figure out what it is that God expects, what it is that God wants 
out of this relationship. And what we're going to learn today is that God doesn't just want us to worship him on the weekends. He wants us to walk with him all week long. And so we're going to make that our, our bottom line today. And, and so um, if, you, if you've never been here before, here's how it goes. If, if you leave here today and you remember nothing else of what happened this morning, I want you to hold on to this one, uh, this one thing. God doesn't just want you to worship him on the weekend. He wants you to walk with him all week long. All right? No matter what else you hear today, make sure you hold on to that. Especially come uh, Wednesday or Thursday, you know, when, you're, when your batteries are low and, and life has just gotten to you and it's a struggle and, and, it, and it's like difficult and you're like, what do I do? J- just remember, God, God wants you to walk with him all week long. He wants that relationship with you. It's not just about showing up to church on Sunday morning and singing a few songs and giving a few dollars and worshiping and listening to the message. It's about this relationship that God wants to continue each and every day. And so I want to take you today uh, through the Exodus story, and and we're going to cover a lot. So from about chapter 19, where the covenant relationship is first mentioned, God mentions this covenant relationship to the people, all the way through chapter 32, and then a little bit in uh, the end of, of chapter 40. So it's a lot. But what you'll see in this, uh, as we go through today, is this process by which God is calling his people into relationship. And we're going to witness three of God's relational strengths. That he is powerful, that he is present, and that he is personal. So as you think about God, I want you to think about those those three things, that God is powerful, that he's present, whatever you're going through, and that he's, and that he's personal. And so we, we talk about it. it's not just about worship on the weekend, it's about walking with God all week long and walking with a God who is powerful, present, and, and personal. So as we, as we kind of jump into the story of Exodus, there is zero chance at, at this point in the Exodus story that the people of Israel and maybe multiple millions of people uh, from Egypt who have all fled Pharaoh, right? The 10 plagues came and, and then they, they, they just they got out of Dodge. They witnessed the parting of the Gulf of Aqaba, right? And so that was like this big thing. There was the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and it was leading them. But they, they get to the edge of the Gulf of Aqaba and they think they're going to die. And then, and then God parts the waters and Israel walks through on dry land. They get to the other side and, and then Pharaoh in, in his... Um, in his, with his ego and whatever, he, he like, well, I'm going to go after him. And then he rushes the army down into the water and the, and the water comes in and, and, and drowns them all. And so God has this great victory over the, over the Egyptian people as they just drowned in, in the Gulf. And, and so this all happens very early in the story. And there's a whole bunch of things that we haven't mentioned yet in, in this series. They all take place before chapter 19. So in, in chapter 15, um, Israel has made it through the water. They're on the other side. They're in the desert. They are free from Egypt. In fact, they have this big party once um, all of Egypt's army is drowned because Israel knows Egypt's not going to come after us anymore. Like, not only is it a long trek way up over the, to the north around the Gulf of Aqaba, but their army is just like, who are they going to come after them with? And so Israel finally feels free, and the first thing that happens is they realize we're in a desert and we have no water. And they come to this place called um, Mara, 
Amara means bitter, and so it's a, it's a lake or a pool or, or some kind of body of water, but everybody in the area, remember Moses um, has lived here for the last 80 years or something, and so they come to this body of water, but everybody knows that the water is undrinkable, and so God miraculously turns this undrinkable water into good water, and, and the people are saved. And then in chapter 16, that's where God provides the manna and the quail. And, and the manna and the quail are going are to be present with the people for the next 40 years, 39 years and 10 months or whatever it is of their, or their journey, right? They're going to be provided food all that time. In chapter 17, there's this well-known like building-sized boulder. It's called the rock at Horeb, and you, and you can look it up uh, today. It's this incredibly large boulder and and God talks to Moses and he says all right I'm going to provide water from this rock and so the rock splits and water comes out of it and and if you read the story of Exodus what you discover is that is that that water didn't just come out to to water the Egyptians their flocks and herds and all of that stuff for a few days the water from the rock at Horeb became a river it says that watered the Israelites for the next 40 years as they wandered in the desert so this is a huge miracle. And so the people have seen God's power over and over and over again displayed in a whole bunch of different ways. And up to this point, the, the Israelite people, they've, they've seen God's power revealed in like all of these different ways and all of these different places. And so every time the Israelite people face a trial or a difficulty or a struggle, like God shows up and, and, he, and he gets them out of it. And, and, and that's all beside, beside the fact that God, God has been present with the Israelite people in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He's been leading them um, since they left Egypt. So they have these, all these visible signs of all these things God did. The water turns the water and he drowns the Egyptians and he, and he brings water from the rock and he gives manna and quails. He did all of these things. But then he's also present with the people in this cloud and the fire. And, and so the presence of God is leading the people through the desert. So they have these witnesses of God all the time. Like he's there all the time. But as we get to chapter 19 in the story of Exodus, God's power is going to be witnessed on even a bigger scale. Now, since God introduced himself to Moses, the process has really been pretty much the same. God uh, speaks to Moses, and then Moses speaks to the people, and Moses tells them what God said. Um, oh, I got a whole bunch of stuff. Give me just a second, because I lost my place. Uh, okay, we're not there. We're there. Uh, okay, uh, the process has been the same. Um, okay, God speaks to Moses. All right, Exodus chapter 19. We're going to jump in there. Sorry, Julie. Two months after leaving Egypt, they arrived at the desert near Mount Sinai, where they set up camp at the foot of the mountain. And Moses, he goes up the mountain to meet with the Lord God, who told him to say to the people, you saw what I did in Egypt. You know how I brought you here to me, just as a mighty eagle carries its young. Now, if you will faithfully obey me, you will be my very own people. The whole world is mine, but you will be a holy nation and serve me as priests. Okay, 
this is the place and time where the covenant between God and the Israelite people really is initiated, right? And so God says, says, look, this is what I've done for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I showed you my power. I've provided for you. I've protected you, for you, protected you. I've given you all these things. I've carried you like an eagle or wings. And so, look, if you will faithfully obey me, then you will be my people and I will be your God. And the people respond to Moses. Like Moses hears from God. He goes down. He tells the people. The people say, we can and we will do everything that God commands. And so then they prepare themselves, like this big, huge thing. For three days, they prepare themselves ritually to be in the presence of God, like to meet with God. And on the third day, all of these people, millions of people most likely, assemble around the foot of the mountain of of Sinai, the very mountain where God had first introduced himself to Moses. So if you go way back to the beginning in Exodus, when we first started this series off, Moses asked God, he's standing in front of the burning bush, he's having this conversation with God, and he says, God, how will I know that the things you're saying are going to happen? He's like, like, what's the proof that all of these things you're saying is actually going to happen? And I love God's response. God says, Moses, when all of the things that I have said have been completed, and you are standing on this mountain worshiping me, then you will know that I've done everything I said I was going to do. And I love the way that God does that because we always want the proof ahead of time, right? God, um, I think you're calling me to do this. And if you will lay it all out and you will tell me everything that's going to happen and you will give me all of these assurances that this is going to happen, then I'll do what you want to do. And God goes, no, that's not how it works. At the end, when you have done everything I have asked you to do and it's all worked out for my glory, then you'll know. That, that what I have to say is true. And I just love that about God. And so guess what? Moses is back at Mount Sinai, and he's standing before God, and he's having this conversation. And I feel like God is not this way, but if I were God, I'd be like, I told you so. <laughs> like, I, you, like, I told you this was going to happen, and now you're here, and so, like, you know, trust me. Anyway, Moses is here, this very mountain that God has... Um, called them to. Uh, and so here's what happens. Look a little bit farther in the chapter. On the morning of the third day, okay, so they prepped themselves for three days. They're now at the foot of the mountain. There was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud covered the mountain. A loud trumpet blast was heard, and everyone in camp trembled with fear. Moses led, uh, led them out of the camp to meet God. So they come out of their, their tents and whatever. They come to the Mount, of Mountain Sinai where there's thunder and lightning and thick cloud and all this stuff going on on top. He leads them out to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down in a flaming fire. Smoke poured out of the mountain just like a furnace, and the whole mountain shook. The trumpet blew louder and louder. Now look what happens in chapter 20. God said to the people of Israel, so they're all standing around the mountain. God says to the people of it, not to Moses. This is important. We catch this. He's not talking to Moses. He's talking to everybody. 
Everybody that's there can hear what God is saying. And he says, I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt where you were slaves. All right, we we need to get a picture of this. God has been visible to the people of Israel in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire day and night for the last two months, right? They've seen the 10 plagues happen. They watched Egypt's army be destroyed in the Gulf of Aqaba. They've had this fire and cloud. God has been present with them, but now he is present in a completely different way than he has been up to this point. God now um, comes down on this mountain. And, and, and mountain, like I grew up in Oregon, okay? Mountains in, in Israel, uh, in the promise, they are, they are not the same kind of mountains that we talk. This is called, um, in fact, I, I think today it's still called Jabal El Laws. It, it means mountain of, of laws. Um, and, and it's like a, a big hill. And, and so it's, you know, if you're standing at the bottom of it, it's, it's, it's kind of big, but it's not like a mountain like we, like the Cascades or something. It's not a big mountain. So on the top of this kind of, kind of hill mountain thing, God has descended and there's smoke and there's fire and there's lightning and there's this trumpet blast coming from the midst of this cloud. And, and the smoke, the black smoke is just billowing up um, off the top of this cloud. I, think about it this way. Think about if you stepped out on your porch one day, and basically every natural disaster that could happen is happening, like right in front of you, you're watching it, and and yet, like nothing is destroyed. Like there's an earthquake, the ground is shaking, there's fire, there's smoke, there's tornadoes, there's all kinds of stuff. Like that would freak you out a little bit. (laughs) What, What is going on here? And so they're all standing around the mountain and they're watching this incredible sight as God begins to speak from the midst of the storm at the top of the mountain and he issues the tenets of the covenant, the Ten Commands. So all of the people are at the foot of the mountain hearing God speak the Ten Commandments. Now, this is where we often get mixed up in the story, right? Because in our minds, what happens is they go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. He talks to God. He gets the law, uh, uh, stone tablets. He comes down. He breaks them. He gets mad at the people, kills a bunch of them. And it goes back up at the mountain. Uh, it makes more tablets and, and comes down. That's not what the story says. The story says the people gathered. And, and if you go back to the beginning of chapter 19, why did all the people gather at the foot of the mountain? Because God said, I am going to make you, all of you, a nation of priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people and the people to God. Now, there's a whole priestly tribe that that happens. You read Leviticus, you read all about that. But God's original intent was that every person of Israel and every Egyptian who converted would become a priest his. And the priest is the one who gets to talk to God. And so what we see is that God wanted a personal relationship with every person there. And so he gives the law, the Ten Commandments, to all of the people. And it's this incredible moment that that happens. Okay, let's look what happens next in, in chapter 20. The people 
see all of this stuff going on the top of the mountain. They hear God's voice and they tremble with fear when they heard the thunder and the trumpet and they saw the lightning and the smoke coming from the mountain. They stood a long way off and they say to Moses, look, look, Moses, if you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Like, Moses, we can't handle this anymore. This is too much for us. We can't take it. You you be our representative. We we can't handle being priests and talking directly to God. We need somebody else to be a priest for us. And so you represent us to God and you come back and tell us what God says. And whatever God says, we'll we'll do. Do do you see what's happened? The, The people have just removed themselves from where God wanted them to be. God says, I'm going to make you all into a nation of priests. And they go, nah, it's too much. We can't handle it. And, and, and I don't want to be too hard on them because basically every single person that's ever talked to God in this way or heard God's voice has said the same thing. What did Moses say when he first met God? God, I think you've got the wrong person. Like, don't, don't send me. I can't do this. And so there's this huge moment. It's this big thing, and, and, and yet all of the course of what God intended to, to, to do through the Israelite people is already set off course in, in this one moment. So God has issued to Moses, um, the, he's initiated the covenant. He told Moses, if, if you go tell the people, if they will obey me, do what I say, I'll be their God and, and they'll be my people. Moses comes down and says, can you do this? They, says, they say, we'll obey every single command that God makes. And so in three days, they meet God and God says, I'm going to make you into a nation of priests. And they go, I would do anything for God, but I won't do that. <laughs> Against this moment, right? And, then, and so they, they, they take it, they pull back. Immediately, they're already um, pulling back. And so God initiated the covenant. Then he gave the terms of the covenant in the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and he's not going through Moses. He's going directly to the people. They hear his voice, but they can't handle it. They're too afraid. They say, no, Moses, you go, and then we'll listen to you. So they said they would obey, and they immediately begin to backpedal that um, that decision. So here's what happened. Moses goes back up the mountain, and the whole nation continues to stand around the mountain as Moses is up there talking to God, right? This is what they wanted. So he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then the people go, Moses, we can't hear anymore. You go talk to God. So he goes up And he talks to God. And in chapters 21 to 23, God gives Moses this long list of rules for the people. Rules about how to treat their servants. uh, Rules about personal injury claims and property and social justice laws. He tells Moses about justice and mercy and how the people are to function in that way. How to keep the Sabbath and the three annual required feasts that God has instituted. And and he talks about his part of the, the covenant. God says, Moses, look... If you, if you and the people will follow me, then I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to fulfill all of these promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to you and, and the people as this new kingdom of people begins. All of that happens, 21 to 23, 
All of that happens while the people are still standing at the foot of the mountain, watching the fire, the flame, the smoke. They're hearing the trumpet. Um, They just no longer hear the voice of God. And Moses comes down the mountain, right? So here's God. He comes down the mountain. All the people are assembled, and he repeats what God has said to the people. So he says, this is what God said about social justice, about servants, about his promises and his provision and all that kind of stuff. And in chapter 24, the covenant then is confirmed between God and the people, and it's confirmed with blood. And so according to God, Moses sacrifices a bunch of animals on an altar that they built that God had told him to build, and he, and he takes the blood of those animals and he kind of sprinkles it on all of of the people. I don't know exactly how that happened, but symbolic somehow sprinkles the blood on on all uh, of the people, and they agree then to follow the commands of God and to be his people, and they officially entered in at the the, uh, blood, they officially entered into their covenant relationship with God. Then God calls Moses back up the mountain And here's where the story takes a turn and probably what you remember most about the story. So after the covenant has been initiated, God goes back, uh, Moses goes back up to the mountain and there's some other things that are going on, like Aaron and different people uh, go with him and then they come back down, they go back up. There's a lot of things happening, but, but basically what you need to know is that Moses is on the mountain talking to God and the people go back about their lives. Right? So, so for the first, I, I don't know, day or whatever, the people have been standing at the foot of the mountain. They've been watching the fire and the smoke and all that kind of stuff. They've been listening to the trumpet. Um, and, and now Moses goes back up the mountain and they go back uh, about their daily lives. They go back to their tents, their houses. They go back to work. They go back to doing the things they, they need to do. Um, They couldn't listen to God themselves, so they make Moses do it. And once Moses is doing it, they go, what are we here for? We don't have to listen to God. Moses is going to come down and tell us everything. Let's let's go back. Let's go, you know, maybe there's a show on TV we need to watch or something. The TiVo's not working. We got to go. And and so this is where things get bad because Moses ends up being on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And after a while, the people go, like, maybe God just killed him. Maybe he's not ever coming back down the mountain. Well, we don't know what to do. We better uh, make a God to worship, and we'll call this God by the name of, of that God that we can see on the mountain, the God has been leading us around for the last two months. We can see him, but, but let's make a God for ourselves out of gold, and so they make this golden calf, and, and, they, and they do all this stuff. While Moses is up on the mountain for those 40 days, and the people are, are like just full-on sinning, right? Moses is getting a whole lot of of information from God. So in chapters 25 to 31, God is giving Moses all of the requirements for the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is the is uh, precedes the temple. It's the place where God's presence is going to dwell. The ark of the covenant is there, the table of showbread, the uh, candle stand, uh, the table of incense, and it's all covered. It's all very specific. God gives him all of this stuff. The tabernacle is supposed to reside in the center of the people. So there's millions of people. The tabernacle, every time they stop and camp, the tabernacle goes in the middle, 
and there are three tribes on each side, north, south, east, west of the tabernacle. And so the presence of God is in the center of the people always. And this is where we talked about the people would build their huts and they'd have a hole in the top and they could see the pillar of fire and the cloud during the day from their homes. They could see the presence of God. Just like they're watching this fire and lightning and whatever at the top of the mountain. And so God says that where the tabernacle is, there my presence in the fire and the cloud will come and will rest. So Moses has been gone for 40 days. The people think maybe he's died. And so they just decide to make their own uh, God, this golden calf. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. In chapter 40, the people have completed construction of the tabernacle. So Moses comes down to the mountain. He corrects their sin. He destroys the, the, the golden calf. He goes back up. He talks to God. He comes back down. The people begin working on uh, the tabernacle. So let's go to Exodus chapter 40. Finally, Moses had the curtains hung around the courtyard and at the entrance. So they've built the tabernacle. They've gotten the instructions. They've built it. They've constructed it. And they've built the outer courtyard around the tabernacle. And suddenly, the sacred tent was covered by a thick cloud. Okay, the same cloud that was on the mountain. And it filled the glory of, uh, and it filled with the glory of the Lord. And Moses could not enter the tent. Now that's important because where has Moses been? He's been on the mountain in the presence of God. In, in fact, before this happens, Moses says to God, let me see you. And, and God says, well, you can't see me because if I showed you all of my glory and power, you would die. You, you could like getting clo too close to the sun. You'd just like that would be the end of you. And so what I'm going to do for you, Moses, is I'm going to let you see just enough of my glory that you will still be able to live. A tiny percentage of, of my glory so that you won't Die. And even that tiny percent of God's glory changed Moses because when he came down from the mountain, remember his face was glowing and he had to wear a veil because the people couldn't look at him. So now God's presence comes and fills the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and even Moses cannot enter the tent. And whenever the cloud moved from the tent, the people would break camp and they'd follow. And then they would set up camp and stay there until the cloud or fire moved again. No matter where the people traveled, the Lord was with them. Remember that. Each day his cloud was over the tent and each night a fire could be seen in the cloud. Now this whole story is one big lesson about God's power, his presence among his people, and his personal nature in relationship. All of this story is about revealing God, who God is to the people. And all the Israelites and those Egyptians that have traveled with them, all they knew up to this point was the fake gods of the Egyptians. Gods that were supposed to be powerful, but were not personal or present in their struggles and needs. And so through the story of Exodus, God is revealing his character to his people. Because a powerful God who isn't a personal God just wants control. 
right? He's the Wizard of Oz. I'm powerful, but I don't really want to know you, and I, you don't need to know me. You just need to know that if you break my law, I'm going to break you, right? A powerful God that isn't personal is just about control. A personal God who isn't present isn't any help. God, I'm, I'm, I want to have a personal relationship with you, but I'm going to be busy doing other things, right? Imagine God is like, hey, look, I love you, um, but there's this game or something going on on social media, and so I'm distracted all the time. I can't pay attention. Like, like maybe you've got a relationship like that. You're like, let's, like, I want to have a conversation with you. Be present in the, in, in the moment. And so a God who wants to be personal but isn't present in the moment with what you're going on isn't much help. And, and a present God, a God who's with you uh, all week and kind of walking through your, your week with you but isn't powerful and can't do anything for you, well, that's just a crutch, right? We go, well, I want to be able to say that God is with me, but God can't really do anything to, to help me or protect me or provide for me. So God was revealing to the Israelite people, and I think to us, that he was all of these things, that he was powerful that he was present, and that he wanted to have a personal relationship. And so in chapter 40, verse 34, it says, The tabernacle was filled with this glory of the presence of God, and it was so consuming that nobody could enter it. I want you to see this picture. Because from Genesis 1, God has introduced himself to humanity, and his desire has always been the same. He even proclaimed it over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's desire has always been that through his people, all people would come not just to worship him, but to walk with him. And and if you did a study about this, you would be amazed. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets and in Genesis, and every time God spoke to people, every time he spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he said, not only are you going to be blessed, but all people are going to be blessed through you. And so from the beginning of the Bible, God has always had this desire that every person would be blessed through his people. And so if you didn't catch it, here's the progression. God calls a person, Moses, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jesus. He calls a person, and then that person calls a people, and then those people are to call all people. Do you see how that works? In the story of Exodus, it's Moses. God calls Moses, and then Moses goes and talks to the Israelites, and God calls a people. And then from that people... Those people who were supposed to be a nation of priests, God's desire was that all people everywhere, that every other nation would come to know him through the people of Israel. Years ago, we felt the desire to plant a church here in El Dorado. And there have been lots of of independent Christian churches talking about planting a church in El Dorado, and none of them had done it. And so there was a call to plant a church where it didn't exist. And then you have come. And and through the people of God here at Real Life, God wants to call all people everywhere to faith. But I think it even gets more personal. You are here today. You've come today, and that means that God has called you. 
But God doesn't just want to call you. He wants to call the people around you, your friends, your family. And through you, he wants to reach a larger people group. And then through that people group, he wants all people to come to know him. And God always starts with a person that then calls a people. And then the ultimate goal is all people everywhere. And so here's how we say it. We each, as we have been called by God in relationship to him, we join together in worship and in walking out our faith. And we do that in order to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day. But if you and I don't stop seeing worship as a weekend thing, we'll never learn to walk with Jesus through the week. If all the Jesus you get is in an hour and 10 or 15 minutes here on Sunday morning, you are never going to learn to walk with him during the rest of the week and will never accomplish the goal of helping every person possible find real life in Jesus. God introduced himself as a powerful, present, and personal God. And the tabernacle was a key piece in conveying that message. That God didn't just want humanity to worship him, but to walk with him. He wanted to be present and personal in every aspect of their lives. He wanted that so much that he sent his son. And nearly 1,500 years later, after the tabernacle was constructed and the glory of God filled it, the apostle John wrote these words. The word became a human being and tabernacled with us. Now, you're not going to read that word in in your Bible, right? Because it's been translated. But in the original language, that's the word that was used. God, the word God in Jesus became a human being and tabernacled with us. Your Bible probably says, and dwelt among us or lived with us. I think that's really cool because it helps us understand that God has not come to us um, again through a house, but a human. And, And like God's choosing of Israel, God didn't pick you because you were good. He picked you because he is good. And relationship with God no longer comes through the blood of animals that Moses sprinkles on all the people in covenant, but through the blood of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. God no longer dwells in a house made of brick or stone, but in hearts made of flesh and failure. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. And thank you for sending your son and for doing for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. And, and, and through Jesus, we're able to fulfill what the Israelite people were, were unable to do. Through Jesus, we have become a kingdom of priests. People who no longer need anybody else to intercede from, uh, between them and, and you, but each of us 
have come, not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of Jesus given to us through his sacrifice. And so scripture says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We are priests. We've been called into relationship with you through Jesus, but not just so that we could get to be with you, but that we would gather a people who would become priests, who would then gather all people to be in relationship. And the story of Exodus and the construction of the tabernacle and your presence with the people in the center of the camp and and enjoying and being a part of every day of their life is a picture of what life is supposed to be like for us. Not that we would go to a place, a, a house where you are present, but that we would understand that through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you are present in each one of us. We have become the tabernacle. We have become the dwelling place of God Almighty. Help us, God, to remember that you are not interested in a people who show up on a Sunday morning and worship and then go about their day. Your desire has always been to walk with us every day of the week. And so, Father, this week, help us to do that. Help us to make present the kingdom of God in our lives by by living out the commands and the call that you have given us. Not just sharing our faith, but God, living, uh, uh, living up to our convictions, convictions that have come from you. And, and, and God, being able, as your word says, giving, being able to share the reason for the hope that we have to anybody who would ask. Father, help us to walk with you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next week we're going to wrap up this um, series, and we're going to be talking about how we can remain in that covenant relationship, uh, covenant relationship with God. So I hope you'll join me um, next week for that. Uh, are we off? Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions, or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas.